You're listening to a podcast from GUT. Welcome to the GUT podcast. I'm Mary McLean, Senior Lecturer and Consultant in Gastroenterology at the University of Aberdeen, Scotland, UK, and current visiting research fellow at the National Cancer Institute in the USA. In my capacity as Education Editor, I'm posting this podcast today. This month we are discussing the current Editor's Choice manuscript entitled Classification of Acute Pancreatitis 2012, Revision of the Atlanta Classification and Definitions by International Consensus. This is presented by Dr. Peter Banks and co-authors on behalf of the Acute Pancreatitis Classification Working Group. I'm delighted to be joined by two of the authors here today. Firstly, Dr. Peter Banks from the Division of Gastroenterology, Hepatology and Endoscopy at Harvard Medical School in Boston in the USA. And I'm also joined by Dr. Michael Starr from the Department of Surgery at the Mayo Clinic, Minnesota in the USA. Welcome and thanks to you both for agreeing to participate in this today. We'll come on to the details of the reclassification in a moment, but I first want to discuss some of the wider issues around the manuscript. Why was the reclassification required and how did the idea for this arise and evolve? Yeah, this is Dr. Banks. I'll be glad to tackle that question. All of us since uh, 1992 have been working off the initial classification called the Atlanta classification, and it became clear that this was a flawed classification. It was fine in 1992, but wasn't um, then test-driven in terms of uh, how accurate it would really be. So a number of us over the years, and particularly the last 10 years, had the feeling that we should, we could do better, and a reclassification uh, system would enable us to uh, be able to crosstalk better because we'd be using the same terminology and would also aid in research and in patient care. And so uh, there was an initial meeting uh, as part of a wider meeting in Greece uh, perhaps six or eight years ago, and uh, about six of us uh, participated in that, and then over the period of time, others joined in this effort. So this reclassification has been by international consensus and used a novel web-based consultation process. So how was the international consensus achieved? That's a great question. And this is Mike Saar, and I'm going to address this. Our initial goal was to come up with a new way to have a consensus conference, one that wouldn't require a group of the so-called graybeard experts to go to a specific site for one to three days, talk about a topic, and then write it up in a way that it's usually written by one person and briefly circulated to the members of the, quote, consensus conference, because that's how the Atlanta consensus conference was done and how many are done currently. So what we wanted to do is have a, what I'm going to call a global web-based consensus conference that would allow anyone who has access to the web to participate in it, give their thoughts, and then by a working group who would take all these considerations into consideration, redo a working manuscript and then send it out on a web-based fashion for comment by people everywhere, anybody who was interested. It sounded like a great idea. We tried it, uh, and in the in the end, I'm not sure it worked as well as we had hoped. And let me let me uh, uh, elaborate on this. 
there was an idea by a group of us to redo this classification. So there were about 40 of us that met at the American Gastroenterological Association to say, is this worthwhile? There were representatives from several national and international societies that came. And the decision was that, yes, it's a good idea. Let's establish a so-called working group that was multidisciplinary. This working group would come up with a first draft of a proposed new classification, and then we would send it out to the world of pancreatology. And that included the International Association of Pancreatology, the American Pancreatic Association, the European Pancreatic Club, the Pancreatic Disorders section of the American Gastroenterological Association, the Society for Surgery of the Alimentary Tract, the Pancreas Club, the American Hepatopancreatobiliary Association, the Japanese Association of HPB Surgery, the Pancreatic Network of New Zealand, the Australian Pan Australasian Pancreatic Club, and the Japanese Pancreatic Society with the idea that these were the focus groups that are interested in the pancreas, the groups that deal with acute pancreatitis. So we wrote to these organizations, and all of them agreed that they would send out this draft document to all of, all of their members. So I think if you asked Peter and I how many responses we hoped we would get to the first circulation of this working group's document, we were hoping for several hundred. The problem is we, we, we got about 50 the first time. They were good, people thought about this, but I'll be very honest with you, many of the leaders in pancreatology didn't give us their, their thoughts. And that was a bit disappointing. And some of it is everybody's busy, they all have their own parochial interests. Uh, there were probably were some people who felt that uh, they should have been included in the working group. But anyway, we got these first 50 responses. Everyone on our working group, and there were six of us, reviewed every response. We redid the, man the proposed manuscript. Everyone agreed to it. We sent it out a second time. We got about 40 responses came back, we changed it according to the responses. We've changed it several times over these four or five years by new data that have come along. The third time we sent it out, we pretty much had a consensus. So that was the theory behind how we were going to do this. Um, and it worked pretty well, but the assumption on our part was that everyone in that society who had a real interest in pancreatitis would read it and make some comments, and they really didn't. Well, moving on to the reclassification itself, this reports on several issues, and we'll take each in turn. Now, firstly, can you discuss the criteria presented for the diagnosis of acute pancreatitis, including the definition of onset, and outline the new points within this? Yeah, this is Peter Banks. Um, so it's interesting when one looks at the literature, 
about how papers are written and what the criteria for the diagnosis uh, are offered, it varies considerably. So we thought it was very important to have in, in, in place something that we thought would be the, the basis for the diagnosis. And what we came up with uh, was a, a abdominal pain that would be characteristic or at least consistent with acute pancreatitis, an elevation of serum amylase or lipase at least three times the upper limit of normal, and where that's important is that uh, uh, there is new recent data which uh, makes the point that uh, most patients, if not or, or almost all patients who have uh, enzyme elevation uh, greater than that, have acute pancreatitis. And those who have uh, a lesser degree of elevation uh, uh, most fre frequently have a different diagnosis or no diagnosis at all. And if um, either of these two criteria was not met, there, there, there was a requirement for a third component, and that is a CT scan or possibly MRI uh, or even possibly possibly ultrasound, but most commonly CT scan, uh, clear-cut evidence of acute pancreatitis. We threw in or we put in the, uh, the imaging criteria as a fail-safe if for some reason there was confusion based on only the fact there was only one of the previous two namely um, characteristic abdominal pain and the enzyme elevation that did not uh, meet, a, meet the, uh, the minimum criteria. And we underplayed the CT scan for several reasons. First, we wanted to make it very clear that a CT scan generally is not needed to make the diagnosis, and perhaps the best indication for doing a CT scan is when there's diagnostic confusion. We also went ahead and made the point that uh, for making more distinctions, which we will get into in a subsequent question, such as necrosis versus no necrosis, one really cannot do that on an early CT scan. So that we use, use the CT scan as a fail-safe in case one of the previous two uh, criteria were not met. As far as the uh, definition of onset, we wanted to be clear that the onset would be uh, triggered from the onset of abdominal pain, not the time that a patient reached a hospital, because uh, often enough a patient reaches a hospital and then gets transferred to the second hospital. And it, for the purposes of research and for other considerations, it made uh, a lot of sense to lock in the time of onset of the disease at the uh, time of the, of, the, of the first symptom, which usually is abdominal pain. And there are a lot of other points I think will be covered as we go forward. This is Mike Sarr. This was probably the least controversial of any of our sections because this definition of a three times increase in amylase or lipase activity and characteristic pain is pretty much what everybody accepts. Uh, I'll point out what Peter emphasized is we do this classification does not require imaging within the first week to make a diagnosis of acute pancreatitis. And that's important to point out because not everybody needs any type of cross-sectional imaging. Can, you, can we move on now maybe to comment on defining the severity of disease? Yeah, this was a very important uh, aspect and one of the most important aspects of what we did because severity had been um, characterized in many ways, and, and much of the original Atlanta was then uh, uh, misrepresented going forward. Um, for example, in the initial Atlanta, severity was defined as uh, the presence of um, organ failure and or local complications. And you can immediately see that that kind of a, um, a definition uh, leads to a lot of mischief because uh, when one says, for example, I abided by the Atlantic criteria for severity, 
we're now, by virtue of the definition, which was flawed, we believe, it's really a heterogeneous group of patients. Some will have an organ failure without, say, necrosis. Some will have necrosis without organ failure. Some will have both. That's only the tip of the iceberg of the difficulties. So we were very careful in defining severity, and we actually defined three um, uh, three, uh, we actually stratified severity into three levels. The first was mild acute pancreatitis, and this was defined by pancreatitis in the absence of organ failure and in the absence of local or systemic complications. And I'll define those terms in a moment. Moderately severe acute pancreatitis characterized by the presence of transient organ failure, local complications, or systemic complications. Uh, transient organ failure was defined as organ failure that persisted for less than 48 hours. This is important when we get to the definition of persistent organ failure. Local complications included a variety of uh, uh, variety of, uh, of, of um, complications that could be easily visualized by imaging, including pancreatic necrosis, including fluid collections. Systemic complications were defined specifically as exacerbations of pre-existing comorbidity because it has become very much apparent that comorbidity is a large factor in the outcomes of patients so that uh, pre-existing comorbidity included, uh, for example, a heart disease or, 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 or chronic obstructive lung disease in which the, by virtue of having acute pancreatitis, there were new or, 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 or exacerbations of issues pertaining to the heart disease such as angina or congestive failure or worsening of the obstructive lung disease. And systemic complications were, as I mentioned, exacerbations of pre-existing comorbidity. And severe acute pancreatitis was characterized by the presence of persistent organ failure. And persistent organ failure is defined as organ failure that persists for greater than 48 hours. Where this is important is it's become clear in the last five or 10 years that it's persistent organ failure that's the largest driver of mortality in acute pancreatitis. Uh, that patients with persistent organ failure as a group have a mortality of perhaps 30 to 50 percent, and patients with transient organ failure may have mortality of just a few percent. So these definitions were really important, and what made it even more important is that when one reads uh, articles on severity of acute pancreatitis, severity frequently enough is defined as, for example, death, um, uh, need for intensive care unit care and length of hospitalization, and these these items are really downstream consequences of severity. The driver of uh, of issues such as need for ICU or length of longer length of hospitalization or death, the driver is persistent organ failure, which is the uh, the uh, criteria for what we call severe acute pancreatitis. The reclassification then focuses on defining types of acute pancreatitis and offers two main subdivisions, interstitial edematous and necrotizing. Can you tell us about the main characteristics of each of these? Yes, this is Mike Sarr. Uh, this was uh, a point of some debate when we started this. Everybody would agree that using a contrast-enhanced computed tomography will point out whether or not there is perfusion of the pancreas gland itself. And in the past, people have said, if you have normal perfusion of the pancreas, the disease is interstitial edematous pancreatitis. And if you have abnormal perfusion of the gland, it's necrotizing pancreatitis. So prior to this classification, people talked about two disorders. 
over the last several years, there's been considerable interest in the concept of a normally enhancing pancreatic parenchyma, but peripancreatic necrosis. Now, in the past, it's been called interstitial edematous pancreatitis with fat necrosis, and it's been lumped with people that have only interstitial edematous pancreatitis. The problem is when you add peripancreatic necrosis into the picture, they have a much more severe disease, and it behaves much more like necrotizing pancreatitis that involves necrosis of the parenchyma and not like interstitial edematous pancreatitis. So the classification takes this into consideration. So interstitial edematous pancreatitis is an imaging category that has some edema and enlargement of the pancreatic parenchyma, but full enhancement without any extra pancreatic necrosis. The second category, necrotizing pancreatitis, involves necrosis either of the pancreatic parenchyma alone, which is quite unusual but can occur, or involves necrosis of only the peripancreatic tissues, which can occur probably somewhere in the 20 to 30% range. Or it involves necrosis of the pancreatic parenchyma and the peripancreatic tissues, and that's probably the most common. So the classification is interstitial edematous pancreatitis or necrotizing pancreatitis that involves only the parenchyma, only the peripancreatic tissue, or the parenchyma and the peripancreatic tissue. Uh, the document points out very clearly that these distinctions are very difficult in the first two or three days of hospitalization, so that if one is uh, uh, has a reason to, to know whether someone has necrosis or has interstitial pancreatitis, the CAT scan that's the most relevant and the most accurate is one that's done perhaps after five to seven days, and there can be significant misclassification if one relies on data in the first two or three days in terms of the imaging and what it shows. Well, we touched on this topic a little bit earlier, but can we now just discuss around the considerations of the potential complications of acute pancreatitis? And these are listed as, as you said earlier, local, systemic and organ failure. Um, are there any other additional points you want to add to this? What I said uh, a moment ago probably uh, covers this area. The document uh, points out very clearly and uh, in terms of local complications, the criteria for the language we use, and this had been lacking in the previous uh, document in 1992, the original Atlantic classification, uh, we, go to, we went to great lengths with the help of uh, an international consortium of radiologists to be crystal clear as to the terminology we use uh, on imaging, whether it be peripancreatic necrosis that Mike has talked about, or whether it be uh, fluid collections, uh, we defined very specifically, for example, a pseudocyst in a way that had not been covered properly previously, and were able to distinguish that from other terminology which was new since 1992, such as uh, the concept of walled-off necrosis. And this was an important contribution because unless we had a, uh, a rigorous way of uh, looking at imaging that was generally accepted internationally, then there'd be continue to be confusion about uh, what we're treating and the modalities that were most effective to treat uh, treat each and every one of the local complications. 
and uh, the document made these distinctions very clearly and showed in in images that we uh, that were part of the manuscript the differences uh, among these various uh, local complications. I'll I'll expand on that same topic uh, according to the the concept of quote pseudocyst. Much terminology in the colloquial sense is if a patient has pancreatitis and something happens to the pancreas or the peripancreatic tissue, it's called a, quote, pseudocyst. And that pseudocyst can be fluid that has absolutely no clinical impact, an area of necrosis that has a little bit of a fluid in it that puts them in a different category, what we call acute necrotic collection. It can be a, a, a walled-off collection four or five weeks into the course of the disease that has got some fluid in it, but it has necrosis as well. Or it can be a true pseudocyst, that is, a collection of fluid with minimal necrosis in it. All of these have different clinical implications in terms of severity of the disease. It has different implications in terms of treatment. But everybody in the past has called these, quote, pseudocysts. And that changes how you talk about your experience or your therapy or your management or your prognosis. So probably, in my opinion, the most important part of this classification is that that deals with the peripancreatic collections that occur in the setting of acute pancreatitis. And that, that's to do with the defined criteria of the morphological features associated with the disease based on imaging. So are there any other main points in this section that the are new issues that clinicians need to be aware of? This this section really resonated, and, and it was terribly important that uh, an international group of radiologists uh, arrived at a consensus because we're fully dependent on on how they how they how they interpret these images and we were careful to point out that by imaging criteria these distinctions can be made among these various local complications it's not just a theory it's something that one can actually see and with some training uh, certainly radiologists uh, will will be able to see these issues clearly but it's important that clinicians see it as well because clinicians, um, although they're not radiologists, uh, are dealing with this disease, and many of them are providing therapy, whether it's surgical therapy or endoscopic therapy, so that the, the, the entire GI uh, consortium around the world really needs to look at this document and make very clear in their own minds uh, the differences among these various local complications. So overall, what does this reclassification mean to patients? It's not a clinical guideline, but how do you think this will impact on management? Uh, this is Peter Banks again. It, um, you know, to to be able to provide uh, pr uh, proper and appropriate therapy, one must uh, have a, a clear understanding as to the entity that we're dealing with or the complication we're dealing with, so that by um, be having a rigorous uh, classification uh, in, in place, uh, the individual clinician will presumably do a better job in taking care of patient because there are options for each of these various uh, local complications. Um, also, uh, in a more global sense, um, the, the appreciation of this uh, new classification will uh, help stratify patients, for example, who are 
can be uh, predicted to be severe because, of, uh, for example, they have persistent organ failure. We know that they're severe by definition. They will uh, presumably get access to an intensive care unit sooner because it's now going to be generally understood that this is the, the patients who are the, have, the, have the highest mortality. It presumably will allow physicians in uh, outside hospitals uh, to be uh, more understanding of the difficulties in taking care of these patients and the need for uh, help at an earlier stage and transfer patients to uh, pancreas centers. It will allow us to crosstalk in terms of our research efforts, which is very, very important. And when we do have therapies that um, are in the pipeline to uh, be tested in terms of clinical applicability, if we have a very good classification in uh, in place, we'll be able to uh, focus on the patients uh, who are in the most need of urgent therapy for inclusion into these studies. Any declassification of disease will attract some differing opinions and potential controversy. So what issues remain under debate and how can these points be addressed? That's a very good question. And we look on this classification as being plastic or liquid. And we imagine it's going to change with new data, with uh, new ways of treating things. Uh, And we hope that it will be improved over the next several years. And we expect that there will be some groups that try and validate it. The most controversial section is going to be the one on severity. Um, And there are a number of other different uh, gradings of severity that are either mild or severe, or mild, moderately severe, severe, and critical. Uh, We wanted a classification that was objective and relatively easy to use, that would give the big picture of people that are not sick at all, people that are deathly ill, and people that are in the middle. If you were going to come up with a classification that was as precise as possible, there would be several other categories as well. And such, But then it would be too burdensome to be used in a global sense. So we figured there are people that are going to come in and go home Within the first week, there are going to be people that come in that are sick, very acutely ill, that are potential uh, mortalities, and then there's a group in the middle that come in, they develop local complications or systemic complications. It keeps them in the hospital longer. They have to have some type of an intervention, but eventually the majority of them get better. So with this uh, proposed classification, the mortality for mild pancreatitis should be 1% or less. The mortality for people with severe pancreatitis is probably in the 20 to 40% range. And the mortality of this intermediate group, the moderately severe, we estimate will be somewhere between 5 and 10%. There are other classifications of severity, and we'll have to work them into an update of this classification over the next several years. We're basically saying is, is and thinking, and we've already begun to think seriously about this, is we have to test drive this and see whether, in fact, this is uh, the best classification uh, given the, uh, the the information we have 
that can be that can be acquired. Uh, uh, there will be new information, and time will tell whether this will stand the test of time. But the mistake I think we made with the original Atlanta, and I participated in the original Atlanta back in 1992, is we didn't test drive it; we just went with it. And it took uh, several decades for us to really realize that we, there were there was sufficient flaws in that classification uh, to render it um, inaccurate. How will this new classification enable the field of pancreatic research to progress? Well, I, go ahead, Mike. Well, I think it offers a classification system that everybody can use. And I'll give you an example. Um, in the field of pancreatic surgery, we always worry about when we do a, an anastomosis to the pancreas whether or not there's a leak. And Everybody had their own definition of a leak. And in some groups it was 2%, in some groups it was 30%. So if you introduce a new therapy, it's hard to see whether or not there's been an impact on outcome. There was a group of pancreatic surgeons that got together. They came up with an international-based classification that everybody uses now. So now everybody that talks about pancreatic leaks talk about the same thing. Hopefully, a classification like this, one on acute pancreatitis, will help in that regard. Uh, this is Peter. I'd make one additional comment, and that is that we now have uh, many options to take care of complications of acute pancreatitis. And in a given situation, there may be radiologic options, surgical options, including minimal, uh, what's called minimally invasive surgery, and endoscopic options. And by having a classification in place that everyone agrees to, uh, these studies can be facilitated, and we will then be in a better position to determine under certain, under which circumstances, which form of therapy uh, is the best uh, treatment for patients. To finish, can I just get your opinion on what you think are the most important aspects of the reclassification? And I'll direct that firstly to Peter. I think that um, in addition to uh, the, the the importance of having a classification that everyone agrees to and the impact it has on patient care, I think it's very important that, that physicians uh, nationally and internationally uh, come together and uh, in a cooperative fashion and find uh, common ground for the best way to take care of, for example, acute pancreatitis. And this represents a, a, a very important international effort uh, that is essentially the first volley because as we go to our meetings, which frequently are international, we will continue to discuss these matters. And having a classification in place gives us uh, some groundwork and gives us a basis for continuing this dialogue in a collegial fashion. I think the most useful part of this is to objectify the peripancreatic collections so that they're not all called pseudocysts. And with that, therapies directed more specifically at collections that have necrosis in, it, in them versus collections that are just fluid-filled will resonate amongst the pancreatologists and the pancreatic surgeons. So that's, I think, going to be probably the most useful part of the, the entire classification. At least we hope so. Well, that brings us to the end of today's podcast. I'd just like to thank Dr. Peter Banks and Dr. Michael Starr for joining me today. Thank you very much. A pleasure. Thank Thank you. For more information about this program and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.